Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. This week, I'm nosing around the central London flat of the multi-cillion selling novelist and screenwriter Jojo Moyes. I feel like I'm not an imposter anymore. I feel like the body of work has given me a right to be there, but it's taken me 10 years minimum Jesus, to feel like If you that. had imposter syndrome, there would be no hope for any of us. <laughs> the author of smash hits, including the much-loved global phenomenon Me Before You, and her latest, the wonderful, evocative giver of stars, Jojo became stratospherically Hollywood-level visible at exactly the point when the world expects women to go and play nicely somewhere nobody has to look at them. In the next 45 minutes, she'll talk about how that felt, as well as looking better at 50 than 40, finally shedding lifelong imposter syndrome, and why making new friends at 50 is the best thing ever. I'm here in Jojo Moyes' flat, several floors above a noisy central London street. It's clean, modern, tidy, swanky. Hi, Jojo. Hi. (laughs) Just interested to see my flat through somebody else's eyes. Well, it's actually not as swanky as last time I was here, but it looks a bit more lived in. Yeah, that's because I did. Yeah, I'm here a couple of days a week and my clutter does spread. so. So we were just talking a bit about how our lives have changed in the last... 10 years. I think it's probably 10 years since we got really friendly. And I really distinctly remember I had just left Red and you had just written Me Before You and we went out for lunch. That was when you had just found out Me Before You was Richard and Judy. Do you remember? I remember a different meeting and we went for a quiet early evening drink with a bunch of other women on Twitter. And all I can remember is that about two o'clock, the now editor of The Guardian was ringing my husband saying... Jojo is very busy doing busy work and won't be home tonight. And I ended up crashing on your sofa and I'd never met you before. And then sort of had to do a kind of walk of shame of sorts through central London the following morning, having got completely pie-eyed with this group of very excellent, very rowdy women who clearly didn't stop at one drink. Uh, Let's talk a bit first about how your life has, well, for want of a better way of putting it, shifted. Mm. In the last 10 years, the last 10 years have taken you from 40 to 50. Yeah, and the change in my life has been absolutely beyond any idea I could have had about it. At 40, I had eight books behind me, none of which had been a bestseller. I was struggling. I was worried about money all the time. Uh, I think in most relationships, you have a worrier and a non-worrier, and I was very definitely the worrier. Um, Three kids to get through school and college and and as you know I, I wrote a book called Me Before You almost on spec because my existing publisher wasn't very keen on the idea and that changed my life in about eight million ways I mean it it didn't just bring me the success I'd 
I mean, I don't even want to say hoped because it took me so far beyond what I'd hoped it's for. It's such a crazy level of success. Yeah, really, it, it, it went crazy. And so I, I didn't just exceed all my expectations work-wise, but I think it, it profoundly changed my character as well. And it, and it has continued to change. I've become far less catastrophist. I was very much a catastrophist. I was always braced for the next problem and trying to work out solutions to things before they'd even happened. I was that worrier. Um, and I worry a lot less now, although obviously I worry about the other things like people I love getting ill. Or, But it also made me reassess how I was in the eyes of everybody else because the one thing that success brings you is greater visibility. And mm. at a time in your 40s when you might not really be used to being very visible because in traditional terms that's the age at which you start to become invisible or so society would have it. So I've had to learn to be a slightly more public person uh, with all the issues that that brings with it. I've had to learn to navigate success, which is lovely in many respects and quite complicated in others. I mean, it has an impact on everybody around you. It's not just you. And I've had to learn how to handle a lot of it. Um, You know, it requires some diplomacy. It requires... Uh, social skills that I didn't have before. Uh, also, you have to also think about what your responsibilities are. You know, for example, philanthropically, you have to decide what kind of person you're going to be in handling this. Um, and all this time, I've been bringing up, you know, teenage children as well. So there's a lot. There was a lot. Would I change it? No. God, how lucky have I been? I mean, it's you know, there is not a day still ten years on that I don't wake up feeling just like something amazing happened and and I'm incredibly lucky. It's it's really interesting from outside mm. because you have changed a lot from where I sit, which is not someone who's known you mm. 40 years, but someone who's known you quite well, maybe 10 or 12. Yeah. But in a way you haven't. You're a bit more like, you're like a kind of distilled version of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about the visibility and visibility mm. thing. How did that manifest itself? I think that's really interesting. Uh, Well, for a start, people have an opinion on your work. And then with the film, people started to have an opinion on me. And Just that Hollywood thing. Yeah, because you... Everyone said to me at MGM before the, the film came out, you have no idea how much impact film has compared to books. And I thought, yeah, yeah, all right, just because you're in film, yeah. you don't know. Oh, my God. I mean... You know, just from the mere promotional side of it, you know, you do kind of three weeks traveling the world with your your stars, which is doing the whole junket thing. thing. Which is how, and that's kind of sobering yeah. because suddenly you're this kind of doughy faced nan in between two of the most beautiful people on earth. That's so you were traveling with Amelia Clark, Clark. Sam Claflin, you know, whoever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, literally the most beautiful people you can imagine, and sparky and in their twenties and gorgeous. And then you know, <laughs> there was one kind of hilarious thing where. Amelia gets papped all the time and at airports it became a kind of running joke except I hated it turns out I just felt really I don't like that thing of paparazzi well who does but I I, I really felt very unsettled by the fact that you could be somewhere and then two minutes later a bank of cameras arrive out of nowhere 
And I remember in a in a certain newspaper, as I was doing this, um, my husband just killing himself laughing because Amelia, who has adapted and is wonderful at all these things, just sailed through smiling with her sunglasses on and perfect makeup. And you can just see me behind her clutching my laptop like a weapon and scowling at everybody <laughs> because I just, I can't do it. I have no poker face. I can't hide how I feel. So that that was a bit weird because A, you're confronted with your own image a lot more. And so you're also confronted with the signs of your own mortality. Thank God for hair and makeup. Yeah, also people are going to start behaving as if they know truths about you. And the hardest thing is when those truths are not true. And on social media, there's no point trying to answer them back. You know, that creates its own momentum. And then before you know it, you've got editors of broadsheets saying, well, perhaps you'd like to kind of answer this in... And, you know, and then it becomes a thing and you're like, oh, I, you know, this was not It's a thing. not true. Yeah, it wasn't and true in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. So why would I want to give it oxygen? Um, and, and that's happened to me a couple of times and it's really fucking hard, actually, to keep your mouth shut when you're quite a straightforward person who just wants to say, this isn't true. And, and I can't imagine what it's like if it happens to you in your 20s and also with all the visibility that comes with being a kind of young and, you know, maybe you're an actress or a music star. I mean, promotional stuff is hard anyway. It's hard to give the right amount of stuff, give the right answers, make sure everybody's happy, be on 18 hours a day. I have a friend who says that writing stuff, writing films is the easy bit. What you get paid for is the promotion. And I I think that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it because, to me, promotion is much, much harder than writing books or films. Well, it's two completely different skills, isn't it? Sitting effectively sitting in a room I mean films are a bit different because they're Mm. a bit more collaborative but sitting in a room 24 hours a day seven days a week writing a story which is what you did with me before you versus spending three weeks on a red carpet I mean those things could not be more different how did you find the confidence to do that what did you have external tools Oh, gosh, confidence. I'm one of these people who, if I'm told I have a job to do, I'll just do it. And I don't really think about it. I don't process it till afterwards. Um, And I think because I had no idea of the level of the whirlwind that you get sucked into, I probably didn't even think about it. I just do what I'm told to some extent. I'm not confident in a way that I think, oh, God, I look fantastic or I can, you know, project myself wonderfully. But what I do believe I've always believed that I can pretty much do anything I set my mind to if I work hard enough that I've got a real kind of Protestant work ethic that comes from that so I just apply that to whatever I'm told to do so I will do the job and I'll turn up and I'll smile and I'll try and give the right answers um but it is an art and I'm not sure I always got it right I know I didn't always get it right it there's also a joy in it which is that being part of a film is a huge, huge deal. It's diplomatically tricky. If you're the writer, you have to learn to navigate a film set and, and the various um, levels of production and studio input. And and luckily, I had some really good people helping me because I think it would be very easy as a writer to go wrong in that world because there is a clear hierarchy. And if you don't understand that hierarchy, you're going to put your foot in it. And because I had people who'd been there before me who could talk to me about it, I was able to learn their lessons there was a joy in learning a new thing as well. And also, I love writing books. I write books because I love writing books, but none of us are going to pretend that the great kind of dream isn't to have a lovely film made of your mm. book as well. I'd done all the hard work, and this was the bit where that was allegedly the kind of payoff, which was 
you know, getting to see nice readers and nice fans and people getting excited about it and, and crying in movie theatres and all the rest of it, that... I'd be a liar if I said that wasn't fun as well. And all the blokes who nipped off, nipped off to the loo to cry at the screening because yes. <laughs> they didn't want to cry in public. I love that, yeah. <laughs> and there was a period where people were just sending me pictures of them lying in cinema corridors crying, and that just made me oh. laugh so much. It was just brilliant. And, you know, when, when it works, when people are happy with what you've done, there's no better feeling because it has a huge reach. Um, it's, you know, it, it is kind of magical. If I had a, a phrase for my 40s to 50s, it would be all the things, all the time. Basically, I, I literally live four seasons in one day, every single day. And it, so that can only get better, even more seasons in one day between 50s and 60s. Here's an interesting thing. I, you know, it's coming up to 50, it's hard if you're, if you're a woman. Perhaps mm. it's hard for men as well, but I definitely I really felt agree. it. Yeah, it's the run up to it was almost worse than the doing of it. And I had a kind of a lot of stuff going on in my personal life as well. But there is something terrifying about the idea that you are 50 to me. I just associated it with bank managers and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, it was like grown <laughs> but up. men, not women. Yes, yeah, yeah, maybe. But I've done a few things in the last few years. One is that I've lost some weight. I've got a lot fitter. I've actually started to put a lot more effort into taking care of myself, which I was always quite bad at, like a lot of English women. And I think mm. maybe some of that is to do with spending time in Hollywood, where it's not considered kind of particularly indulgent to take care of yourself. And mm. so I think because I, I came of age in the 90s, when it was almost unfashionable to to be too dollied up, you know, you, yeah. you wore your jeans and your boots and your vest top and your messy hair, and you might have a bit of eyeliner and lipstick, but you wouldn't dream of doing much more than that, because... You know, well, it just was a bit trying hard, yeah. For... And now I do. I I run a few times a week. I have a personal trainer. I I spend a lot of money on skincare, and I do all those things, and I get my hair done, and I I just pay a lot more attention. And um, it's a bit distressing how many people tell me I look so much better, but I'm fitter and I look better than I did at forty, and that's sort of quite a nice thing, if I'm honest, because I I do think I look better and. and I dress better, I understand myself better. So, And also, when the success thing first hit, I had girlfriends, not just girlfriends, actually, male friends as well, who told me for, that for about three or four years, I looked permanently like a rabbit trapped in headlights. I felt for a while like somebody was always asking me for something, mm. always. And, and there was a stage where I was trying to respond personally to every email because a lot of them were very um, moving and, and personal, and it, it's just too much in the end. And you just, I, I remember flinching, literally physically flinching when my agent asked me, would I like to do something or would I like to speak mm. to somebody? And, and then realising that something had to start changing. And so I worked a bit harder on, I, I became much more aware of having to take some control and push back on some of the demands. Do you think that was because that at the beginning of the success, when someone says to you, oh, do four weeks in America, then do a week in Sweden, then yeah. do two weeks in Germany, you're so kind of grateful yes. that you just do everything that's oh asked God, of you yeah, and you aren't yeah. quite successful enough to go... No, I'd spent I can't, 10 sorry. years feeling faintly apologetic to my publishers. I'm really sorry I never quite achieved the sales. I'm really sorry that this book didn't do as well as everybody hoped. You know, you just feel personally responsible. I don't know, I did. Mm, I think no, I writers divide quite cleanly into those who feel very entitled and actually are furious with the publishers for not 
selling enough books. Mm. I was the opposite. I would be like, it's my fault. And I think that comes from journalism as well, which is the first thing you're told is if the reader doesn't read beyond the first paragraph, that's your fault. One thing I was going to ask you was, how did you decide that you were going to write the screenplay? Because so many, it's like a received Mm. wisdom that, oh, take the money and let someone else Mm. write the screenplay. That's what all authors are told. Mm -hmm. I can understand wanting to, but it felt like a real kind of leap of faith and actually an act of extreme confidence going, I'm going to write this. These are my people. I'm going to write it. I don't know now, honestly, what gave me the confidence to do it. I think, as you said, I felt very passionately that they were my people. Also, I went into that negotiation fully prepared to hand it over. I'd never considered writing a screenplay, but then the producer asked me if I would consider it. And I am one of those people who tends to say yes before I can think of all the reasons to say no. And it was a tough process. I mean, it was a really tough process. And the, the script went out of my hands twice and came back to me. And... Uh, I had to fight for a lot of the things in it. I mean, the one thing I will say is that I was lucky to work with a a woman director, Thea Sharrock, who we were pretty much on the same page with a lot of it. So once it was just me and her, we were really quite good at working together. We, We understand each other very well. In fact, we've worked together since. But it was a very new world and I... I don't know. I Again, I was lucky to have good friends who helped me through the process I was able to send a couple of drafts off to two people that I know and they would give me notes on them and tell me where I was going wrong and it is a very different process and you have to learn to think visually you have to learn to think what the camera is doing at all times which is not how I would normally write um, but also I loved it I got to learn I mean that that was the other exciting thing you don't expect to be learning new skills in your 40s necessarily and and it was the steepest of learning curves and that was exciting and I'd written eight books, nine books by then. Probably I was... Actually, no, I'd written ten because I'd already written Girl You Left Behind. Uh, so you you become conscious that a lot of your writing process, in terms of books anyway, is is based on tried and tested things that you've learned. And, and of course, everyone is different, but you're, you know you can do it. And I didn't know I could do this. I just didn't want anybody else to do it. That was the problem, that, that it was such a finely balanced thing in terms of the comedy, the tragedy, the social issues, the romance, all that stuff. And, yeah, and I just, the ending. And the ending. And so I did want some control. And in fact, uh, I, I'm not always control for it. The, the, the Giver of Stars, my latest book, I've handed over to somebody else to write, albeit somebody I trust very much. Um, it's, it's not that I need my fingers all over everything. I just... For that one, I, I knew I needed somebody else to do it. Uh, sorry, I needed to do it. Since you mentioned The Giver of Stars, yeah. your newest one, and it's quite different, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I think, I was thinking on the way here, how the power that your the success of Me Before You mm. gave you. Because one of the, for anybody who doesn't know, the way publishing tends to work is it's like, oh, you wrote that, it was really successful, mm. write another one, and In another one, and vein. another one. yeah. And we'll package them similarly and the mm. reader will know what they're getting. Mm-hmm. And from a reader's point of view, that's fair because yeah. if you liked one Jojo Moyes, yeah. you want to know that you're yeah. going to like the next one. But Giver of Stars is, it's I a- think it's like next level. It's, I mean, I love it. Thank My mum loves it. Everyone yeah. I know who's read it loves it. But it's really different. Yeah, it's, it? I should say if people haven't read it, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, niche subject. It's about it's not a niche. bunch of... <laughs> horseback librarians in rural Kentucky in the 1930s and I have to say when I suggested it to 
various publishing people, they gave me the same look that they'd given me when I said I wanted to write a book about a man in a wheelchair who didn't want to live anymore. Um, <laughs> confidence comes with age and, and experience, and I knew that I could make this book work, but I had to do it in a very different voice because it's a very different book. Um, and so, yeah, I had to go to Kentucky. I had to spend time with those people, absorb the language, absorb the the local area. and But again, that was fun because I was getting to do something completely different I don't want to retread the same ground I think that you know I don't want my brain to atrophy I don't want my readers to get bored god my readers I've never said that phrase before (laughs) how terrifying I'd rather take a risk and get it wrong than just stick to a safe route and get it right and I feel like the older I get the more you're expected to take the safe route the more I actually bridle against it do you think you've got braver as you've got older without a doubt Oh, my God, yeah. To the point of foolhardiness sometimes. Oh, give um, me an example. I don't know, taking all my scuba diving exams and going out in kind of rough waters and places where there are sharks or driving a 7.5-tonne lorry. I don't know, just things that... Were they bucket list things? No, I just... I used to be too afraid to make a phone call when I was in my late teens and early 20s and one of the reasons I went into journalism was because it made me have to use a phone back in the days when we used to use telephones Mm -hmm. and I think I have this slightly obstinate streak if I if I'm really frightened of something I'm not going to turn away from it I'll push my way into it because I don't know why I do it it's a kind of compulsive urge not to be beaten by things I guess I mean I definitely think that I've got braver too not in the same way Uh, probably more emotionally braver actually I think what in terms of being able to say what you feel yeah probably I'm um I am I think the only way to put it is that I'm probably quite cowardly Mm -hmm. emotionally and I was I'm like can't uh, bear a confrontation to the detriment of Mm -hmm. of all kinds of things and I think that definitely these last two or three years those things have started to change Mm -hmm. not in a um I hope not in an offensive way, but in a, you know, who do you think you're protecting, I suppose, kind yeah. of way? Are you protecting yourself? Do you think you're protecting them? Actually, none of those things, probably. I just I just think, I don't know, I, I sometimes used to think I had quite a masculine way of approaching these things, which is I'd rather actually have the confrontation, get it out of the way, and then move on. And, and, and I frequently then forget that I even had the confrontation because I, I'm, I don't like bearing grudges. There are very few people in this world who I've ever borne a grudge against because I'm blessed with a fairly short memory for, you know, unless somebody has really done me a wrong, I just can't be bothered to hold that thought. I'd rather just keep moving forward. If you're a, the product of a kind of middle class or low, upper working class background, you're encouraged from childhood to always be thinking about progression so it's mm. like I'll do my O levels back when they were O levels so that I can do my A levels I'll do my A levels so that I can go to university I'll go to university so that I can get a good job I'll get, get a good job so that I can put down a down payment on a house I'll get a nice house and then I can have a family I'll have a nice family and, that. Mm. and it's always the next thing it's always about the next thing and and I realized last year that my workaholism had got kind of quite out of control I've always had elements of it and it had I had three days holiday last year in oh the toughest God. year of my life. And I I realised that I was starting to kind of come apart at the seams. But it also made me realise, what am I doing it for? What's my next step? If, if I'm not enjoying this now, 
what is the point? I mean, I love the work, I love the process. I don't necessarily love all the stuff that goes with it and the obligations and the promotion and the, you know, travel and all the rest of it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We were talking before about how um women's stories are written and how to a certain extent our stories are like mapped out women's much more than men in terms of you know you're supposed to meet the guy get the house Mm -hmm. have the baby and then bam menopause hits but then it's like nothing because the story for women is stops being written then i mean i have written older women uh, yes, often yeah. and one of my favourite characters is, is a minor character called Kathleen in um, Silver Bay who is a 72 year old woman who was once known for catching the biggest shark that New South Wales had ever seen <laughs> and in the book she has a kind of will she won't she romance with a, another man she helps rescue her granddaughter She, you know she's fierce and she's takes no prisoners and I just love that kind of woman I guess who who doesn't let age wither her um and I suppose if I have a a model for getting older it's those sorts of women which is why shouldn't I be striding out there in my inappropriate young person's Mm. shoes and my you know the clothes that I want and I refuse to have people define who I am and I and I celebrate those stories and lots of people i've spoken to have said that they've really felt like in their 40s late 40s Mm. particularly it's like you come to the fore Mm -hmm. a bit in your life and you stop depends how old your kids are if Mm -hmm. you've got kids and all of that but it stops being about other people in quite the same way you know in my own case it was definitely about my children getting older I mean someone very wise once said to me if you have children you can only ever do one thing well and I decided that was going to be work and so for I don't know 20 years my twin focuses have really been work and and children if I wasn't doing one I was doing the other and so I've, I've always been quite good at maintaining friendships but it was probably at a distance it wasn't I never saw friends on a weekly basis. I might Mm. speak to them on a weekly basis, but I didn't have the time to go and see them. And also I lived in a very rural location. I have done for 20 years and it's literally, we've got further and further out until, you know, we're kind of survivalists now. (laughs) Um, But the last couple of years I've spent two nights a week in London and that's enabled me to see a lot more of my girlfriends. And I think there's a lot of things. I think, yeah, it's, it's the energy that comes with your children not needing you 
to be quite so visibly present in their lives because they have their own things going on. Um, it's to do with hormones. I remember, um, uh, I don't know if I should name her, but a journalist who I admire very much telling me a story about how uh, you knew the menopause was starting to come because before then your your teenage or adult kids would come into the room and go, oh, mum, I can't find my keys. Do you know where they are? And, and you'd get up and you'd start moving cushions and, well, where did you leave them? Blah, blah, blah. And then she said she knew that her hormones, her nurturing hormones were leaching away when they did the same thing, walked in and she just went, sat there and went, well, I don't bloody know. Find your own keys. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm bored. Yeah. I'm bored of finding everybody else's keys. Um, and so I think there's a bit of that. You know, there are certain uh, hormonal changes. I mean, I don't know if it's in me or not. I I don't know because I haven't quite reached that point yet. But um, But also it's just... Yeah, it's about a regrouping of energy. And, and also there's an acknowledgement of, of among women of my age that we're not in competition with each other. We might have been a bit in our 30s or even early 40s. We're not now. Everybody's been through some crap. Everybody's had to endure something. I don't know anybody who gets away without some kind of sniper's bullet in mm-hmm. their life. Um, and so I think we tend to be more compassionate at this age. And also we've weeded out those people who are toxic. I mean, if you look at kind of message threads of 20-somethings and early 30-somethings, mm, yeah. they're full of anxiety about toxic friendships and who should... Am I being unreasonable to expect that my friend would do this? By this age, like, who cares? Like, I haven't got time <laughs> for anybody who isn't going to just be a reasonable person around me. And I have such admiration for so many people who... You know, it's the drains and radiators thing. You either you mm. surround yourself with people who radiate warmth or you just come away feeling a bit crap and drained. And, and actually, I'm really lucky. I'm, I'm surrounded by some just amazing women and men, but women mostly. Um, and it's quite a nurturing relationship as well. I mean, you know, this Christmas was one that I found very hard and a lot of women I know found hard. And there were periods where... I would be making three calls a day at least, checking up on other women who were going through tough times. And then they would come back. And the the kind of love that you feel when people just bother to check in on you is kind of an extraordinary thing. Which almost is something that you probably haven't experienced since you were a teenager. No. Or certainly, like, early 20s. Mm. And I've always been a sort of fiercely independent person as well. So I think even though I've always had, you know, a best friend or two, I I didn't expect people to look out for me. And then, you know, with age and you get a bit battered, things happen and the clo- the people closest to you, if you're lucky, they step up. And, and it has moved me to tears sometimes that the little acts of kindness from people who you wouldn't even expect to remember that you were going through something... Um, so although last year was a tough one, I, the thing that I felt very strongly that I would take from it is the kindness of my friends and the kind of joy that I feel. And, and new friends as well. I didn't expect to make new friends in my 50th year, but I have. Um, and they've been amazing. And, and I think it's because also at this age you get a lot better at picking. 
And I make Mm. fairly instant decisions, which is, do I like this person? I think I do. Do I want them in my life? Yes, and I'm going to make an effort to keep them in my life. Would it be fair to say maybe you're making decisions for the right reasons rather than, oh, I need to be friends with that person because everybody else is? Oh, I've never done that. I've never done In fact, I've gone the opposite way, sometimes to my cost. I think I could have networked better in my Mm. young years. I, I never was comfortable with that. I find it easier to network now because I feel like I'm not an imposter anymore. I feel like the body of work has given me a right to be there, but it's taken me 10 years minimum Jesus, to feel like that. if you had imposter syndrome, there would be no hope for any of us, <laughs> frankly. When do you think that went? Can you pinpoint a moment or did it just Not that long away? ago. Maybe two years ago. I'm not sure I'd even call it imposter syndrome. I just, I just didn't feel like I was on that level and then I suppose going on tour and suddenly you get these you that's when you get feedback because most of your life as a writer is spent in a in a room by yourself and you don't want to look at social media because that's a really distorted view of what anybody thinks or feels but then especially when I go to I don't know like the states or Germany or Brazil and and you suddenly have these incredibly enthusiastic readers who are telling you what things that you wrote meant to them in their own lives. And that's an extraordinary thing to to have happen. And so I suppose it's it's the readers that made me feel validated. And if I'm really honest, the numbers of books I've sold because... How many books have you sold? About 38 million. <sighs> yeah. But yeah. that, again, that's... I, I didn't really pay much attention till two or three years ago and then suddenly the numbers became too big to ignore yeah, huge and then you i mean it, because it all of this has been quite a i'm not i'm i'm somebody who likes the process i'm not necessarily someone who looks outwards and so when people say oh are you really pleased are you in the charts i go i don't know because for mm. the most part to me that's the road to madness that's the that because you're always going to do worse than somebody you're always going to do better than somebody it's like you know relying on good looks you're never going to be the most beautiful person in the room so I'd always rather be focused on the work rather than Mm. congratulating myself on something that I've done but I suppose in terms of feeling like I'd earned a place at the table 38 Mm. million did it for me um I want to talk a little bit about menopause because when we uh, when we met on the street, you were carrying a new duvet, <laughs> which um, I've got to say was a ten point yeah. five tog. That's too hot. I know. I'm telling you now that is much too hot. So the yeah, the sweats have just come for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I do get very very hot at night and it's deeply unpleasant. And um, so yes, I thought I'd just nip into John Lewis while I was getting something else today and and come out with a duvet. But I've realised as soon as I saw you that I've got the wrong one. So I'm no doubt destined to sweat a bit more um I'm yeah I'm I'm I think I'm fairly early in the whole process because everything else is still going on in fact it's a really attractive mix of you know periods teenage acne um, (laughs) menopausal sweats yeah just all of it all at once as with everything night sweats chest acne can I try saying that first it's like yeah that was attractive yeah Yeah. and especially because I run as well um and if you are overheating and uh, I wear one of those kind of amazing lululemon bras to run in that are like body armor but the downside of it is everything gets squished together and very hot and really <laughs> sweaty I, and yeah I, I ended up running into my editor um at the end of a run and she said oh have a coffee and I realized I can't do that because like my body just needs a cold shower straight after now <laughs> I just need to cool down 
Um, but yeah, I, I just spend half my life at the wrong temperature. Yeah. Did you know, did you feel like you were remotely aware of menopause, really? No, I think uh, it was until a couple of years ago, I think it was a rather depressing word. It was, it, I probably associated it with redundancy and, you know, a thickening of the waist and a greying of the hair and a kind of crepiness and, and that might be my own preconceptions. But I think I, as a 50-year-old woman, I'm from a generation where our mothers or our mother's mothers wouldn't expect to be seen as attractive beyond their 40s if that you were considered to be a very mature person and now you know I find um there's a whole bunch of us who are still wearing inappropriate clothing and um, and plan to continue and plan doing to continue so. yeah the more yeah. I get I don't know those horrible articles going what not to wear in your 40s I give them a stiff finger and um, immediately go the other way I bought a pair of leather jeans last year which I have worn pretty much twice a week since yeah. and enjoyed very much <laughs> yeah now someone said to me the other day that um that I actually look more in terms of the way I dress I mm. dress more like myself when I was 20 yeah. than I have for the last 30 years it's funny I think I I definitely wear my student wardrobe I mean I'm I'm yeah. sitting here I'm in clumpy uh, black boots, um, black jeans, and a black sweater. I mean, I, I this was pretty much me in 1991. Yeah, we're um, as usual quite similarly dressed. Yeah. I'm also wearing clumpy boots, black jeans, but I've got a unironed khaki shirt on. Mm. Did your mum ever talk to you about menopause? Did you remember your mum having it? Or I moved out when I was very young, so yeah. I I don't remember it. Other than I know my mum got through hers pretty easily and found it quite liberating so that was Mm. quite reassuring to hear um I guess you don't think about it because I suppose it's like death you kind of it's it's not like that no no no, but what I mean is you kind of assume it's never going to happen to you or or what's the point in thinking about it and so uh it's never really um been part of my frame of reference I just don't think about it and I suppose like a lot of my life I just think I'll deal with it when I get there um, and then also a lot of it was to do with working so hard that I didn't really have a chance to think about how I felt about much actually because I was mm. always busy working. The more people I speak to who who are out the other side, mm. the more liberating it is. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, we are all still living within the frame of reference of our society that says, you know, attractive is this yeah. and women do that. But at the same time, I think there are more and more women going, hang on a minute. You know, if I want to wear my ridiculous big boots when I'm 50, 60, yeah. 70, I will. And, you know, yeah, I may not be CEO of a FTSE 100 company, but... Whose opinion do you really care about? Exactly. Do I care what Piers Morgan says in the Daily Mail? No, I don't. Do I care what some of these judgy female commentators say? No, I don't. Do I care what my peers think? Yes, I do. And frankly, even if they don't like what I'm wearing, I could care less because... It makes me happy. I, I've got a kind of ridiculous blue coat. It's a leather coat that's kind of really woolly. And Is that the one you were wearing when yeah, you came in? Yeah, and I, that coat gives me such joy. And I've, my clumpy boots have got a big red stripe down the back. And They're they give me joy. Boots. And I can stomp my whole way across London and back. And, and, you know, all these things make me happy. And I 
if I if my wardrobe makes me happy, then frankly, that's all I care about. I'm not dressed up like Sue Pollard. I'm just, you know, I think I'm age appropriate, but in the style that I like. And I think I've actually got a lot more stylish in my late 40s than I was in my late 30s, when frankly, most of the time I looked like I'd been dragged through a hedge backwards <laughs> because I didn't care. And I had small children. I had other stuff to think about. And now I have more time to think about how I look and I'm quite enjoying it, actually. What's your emotional age? Oh, what, in terms of where do I feel I yeah, am? Yeah, how old do you feel? About yeah. 31. Oh, do you know what? If I had a tenner for everyone who said somewhere between 30 and 35, I'd really? be a lot richer than I am now. That's so funny. I wonder why. I think it's because your 20s are generally quite angst-ridden. You're kind of yeah. panicking and treading water and trying to get onto certain mythical rungs of ladders. And then by the time you're in your 30s, you feel like, well, I've kind of set up a path here and I might as well go with it and you might have met the person that you're going to end up with for a while at least I don't know the thing I I really like about this age and especially having finally got to grips with running a bit which I've never been particularly good at but I've actually just stuck with it is I really like feeling fit Mm. you know I'm I'm really enjoying having muscles that I didn't have and feeling like um my back doesn't hurt all the time Mm. and you know really basic stuff like that I like the fact that when I am in London I pretty much walk everywhere and and anything up to about 35 minutes I won't bother to get a tube or a a taxi or a bus I'll just walk it and and I stick my earphones in and I listen to age inappropriate music and I and it makes me happy um I think that's one of the things um that's really interesting I went through a phase of um the kind of waste the estrogen went down the waste went up that Mm -hmm. did happen and for a while I I did that classic thing of dressing literally dressing in a sack and Uh, and generally feeling a bit shitty about myself and then I realized that yeah whilst I didn't really like having a no waste yeah um it wasn't really so much about that as about the backache and the not feeling as strong as you used to yeah. feel and like groaning when you get out yeah. of bed which is you know not sexy yeah um or comfortable or anything and it was only when I started doing weights and then I've never I want to be a runner but I've never managed to quite force yeah. myself through that pain barrier that I realized it's not it, it was it's st- it ceased to be about being thin because I am that sad person who always wanted to be thinner I know I, I fear the twitter backlash from saying that yeah but it ceased to be about that. And that probably happened in the last two or three years that I, I, I want to be stronger and healthier. Mm. And Well, yeah. I, I had a frozen shoulder for 18 months, which was, it, which is a classic thing for women of a certain age to get. And if you believe in Chinese Writers. medicine, it's also to do with carrying the burden of, you know, family. Oh, really? and, yeah, That's it's quite interesting, interesting if you do, because I, I, I saw everybody to try and fix it. I went... I saw traditional NHS, I had the steroid injections, I had acupuncture. It was so painful I, I, and so debilitating and so interesting, the, the change if you live with chronic pain, how it affects you, how it, it pulls your face down. And it, you know, mm. I remember my best friend coming to the door and saying, you are literally hunched like an old woman. You need to straighten up. And so when that finally went, because they do usually go by themselves, I just thought, I'm never going to be in that position again. And I started boxing once I had the all clear. Um, Why boxing? Because I really wanted to improve shoulder strength and core strength. And and my husband bought me a punch bag. (laughs) 
<laughs> who knows why uh, and I found that you know I was an, I was a traditionally quite weedy kid the only thing I could do was horses because and, and as my mother used to put it that's because they do all the work yeah. um, but I was never athletic and hopeless at ball sports and it turns out to my great joy that hitting is the one thing I'm actually quite good at. I have a lot of power. <laughs> Let's dissect that. Okay. Yeah, I know, but it's really bizarre. And she, my trainer says, you know, you hit harder than a lot of the men that I, t- I train. Um, and I have never stopped valuing being pain-free uh, for the last sort of three years since I got over it. I, every day I'm grateful that nothing hurts. And... Mm. And the thing that is really clear to me is if I keep doing the exercise and I keep running, then stuff doesn't hurt. It's really as simple as that. And I can eat all the chocolate that I like and I can have the curry on a Friday night. And the, and if I stop doing that for a few weeks, I'm afraid it all just turns to kind of jab of the heart because that is the downside of being this age. You have to use it or lose it. Um, but for me, strength is the absolute key thing. I don't really care what size my jeans are but I don't want my ass to be sagging around the back of my jeans and I want my glutes to be holding up everything else so that I don't have problems with my knees and my hip flexors yeah so sorry that's cool. really tedious no it's not no it's not at all it's really interesting <laughs> but it's really depressing to to have to acknowledge the fact that you know there is no quick fix it really is once you get to this age you can tell the people who exercise and that you can tell the people who don't and it's quite interesting for me because I've been to a couple of reunions um, of workplaces that I used to be at. And, you know, if you haven't seen people for 20 years, that Terrifying. difference is stark. Yeah, you can really see the people who've done nothing and the people who've, who've made a modicum of effort to just stay on top of it all. I've got a few questions that okay. I always ask all at right. the end. Uh, firstly, give us a book recommendation. Oh, I'm sure everybody said this, but the standout book for me last year was Three Women by Lisa Taddeo, which so I think brilliant. in terms of thought-provoking and making you examine your own responses, making you think about society, but just also treading ground that hadn't been trod before, like in the most beautifully written way. I think it is an extraordinary work and I think it will hold up as a classic definitely what would you what one piece of advice would you give younger women claim your place in the world I think there are so many pressures on women to focus on how they look and what not to do and what not to say I got in terrible trouble a few years ago because I wrote uh, a jokey piece for you I think um uh, criticizing adult coloring books which I do understand have a role to play for anxiety but what for me they represented at the time was a, a a determination to keep women within the lines and what mm. I want is for women to get out and use their voices and meet people and find out who they are and you're not going to do that if you're stuck inside what would your superpower be oh what is my superpower um, my superpower is I can tell within five scenes whether a film is directed by a man or a woman what are the giveaways uh, it's it's what's through the male gaze. I mean, I've, the, this started with a film with Denzel Washington where he he wakes he's a pilot who wakes up hungover in a hotel room and ends up saving a plane. But you know, it's it's a kind of should he or shouldn't he? You know, it's who's the who's the good guy in this? But this film opens with him waking up in a in a hotel room and this astonishing woman who looks you know just absolutely gorgeous climbs out of bed, stark naked, kind of parades backwards and forwards in front of the camera with her tits, you know, 
stuck out, bends over, you know, straight-legged to pick up her panties, because, of course, they would be panties. And and I just looked at this thing, and I went, no, 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 this is a male director. If that was a woman directing, that woman would have woken up, given Denzel a shove, and gone, oh, mate, make us a coffee, please. My head's flipping, killing me, you know, and, oh, my God, what did you do to me last night? It, what she wouldn't have done is breasted boobily across the set backwards and forwards you know it just and it was such a clear example and, and sure enough it was directed by a man yeah, and so sure. it's become my kind of go-to game it's now. your party trick it's my party trick yeah. definitely can remember that um who would your old bird role model be <gasps> so many oh god i mean Jane Goodall for goodness, Joan Didion for writing, um, Iris Apfel for not giving a shit what anybody thinks of what you wear and just loving how you look in a kind of joyful, pleasurable way. Oh, God, Catherine Hepburn for not giving a shit. Um, Jane Fonda for just milking it till late on and getting arrested every week for causes she believes in. Again, not giving a shit what society thinks about her. There's so many. Which brings me to the last question. Mm. How many fucks do you give? Oh, God, increasingly few. Like, a tiny one at best. Really, there's very few fucks left on my shelf. I, yeah, I'm too old, I'm too tired. I spend half my life walking around muttering, just do your fucking job. That's all I'm asking. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Thank you, Jojo Thank Moyes. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each week on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.